0: Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your word, and we just want to sit at your feet, Lord, and hear from you. We know that you've removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. We know that you've made a relationship available, and Lord, we know now that you've spoken to us through your word, and you continue to speak through us, to us through your word. Because your word is living and powerful, active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts, able to make us thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Lord, your word is amazing, and we want to give it its proper respect this morning. So please, Lord, as we read your word, help us to see it as your supernatural word given to us, as if we were to sit in your living room, And you would be sitting in a chair reading to us your word. And so, Lord, um, we love you. And we are thankful for who you are and all you've done for us. And so we we pray that you would speak to our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Amos chapter 7, please. Today we finish the book of Amos. If you're, if you're new or visiting, uh, we, uh, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, been doing it for a while. Uh, we do an Old Testament piece and a New Testament piece. Today we finish Amos, and so next week we, f- we uh, go to James because prior to Amos we finished Hebrews, and so that's the order of things. Uh, we'll do James, and then we'll come back to Obadiah. And so that's the road map. Everybody found Amos? It's on the left side. Amos, we've talked about, was a sheep breeder. There's a reference to that, he's a, uh, that he, he was a tender of sycamore fruit, that we'll read that uh, today. Bottom line meaning that he was a regular guy. Uh, many of the, uh, the prophets, you know, particularly like, like Daniel. Was Daniel a regular guy? <laughs> Daniel's a rock star, right? <laughs> Daniel was uh, actually a rock star teenager that uh, gets, you know, gets carried off because he's one of the elite right, whatever the elite would have been, and uh, the Babylonians recognize him, he finds himself in a position of prominence, he's always in this, and he's always in this position of prominence, and, and, and yet still has an eye on God close enough that he can use that position that he's been given to impart good to, uh, even at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, the, probably the most powerful man in the world, and so, you know, God's, God sometimes uses guys like Daniel, and sometimes God uses guys like Amos, right? Now, to my knowledge, most of us are a little more Amos-ish than Daniel-ish, which is good, right? Daniel was cool. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be present, God bless you, <laughs> right? But, you know, there's a place. I like this because there's a place in God's divine plan for a sheep breeder from Tekoa, right? If you haven't been here for the last two weeks, uh, let's say, if you have been here for the last two weeks, don't answer this question. We'll save it for those who haven't been here for the last two weeks. If you haven't been here for the last two weeks, there's no shame in that. What famous thing happened in Tacoa? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Amos is from Tacoa. And I like it because we live, you know, we got a few surrounding burgs around here, right? Think of them as Tacoma, right? Like I'm going to drive across the river, go visit Tocoa, right? Otherwise known as Milton, right? I might go north, visit Tacoma, otherwise known as Versailles, right? When, I first came to, when we first came to this, I'm way off, but that's all right. <laughs> when we first came to town, we moved here from Indianapolis, right? And people would say, Oh, that's out in Hanover. I'm like, serious? Anyway, so y'all think differently, right? And I remember, now I'm way off, but I remember uh, I was, for those first few couple years, actually, I was commuting back and forth from Indianapolis, and Tracy and kids were up in Indianapolis, and and I would be down here, and I would kind of get a little taste of culture. So I got a preview of culture. And I remember the night I called my wife, and i said they have a beautiful baby contest in this county fair <laughs> so we're all from tacoa like it or not and i'm now embracing it i'm owning this culture right i am like amos from tacoa right and i love feeling validated because god gives a place for amos from tacoa because that's us right we're sort of amos people from tacoa and in that you might agree, that we sometimes feel um, a little intimidated trying to challenge the cultural narrative with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a reality, right? We feel like, well, the elites are up in, you know, New York or something. We're just from Tacoa, right? Or the, you know, the... You know, the Wall Street brokers are uh, up there and, you know, the CNN commentators are up there and, you know, they know everything, CNN commentators. And and we're just like shepherds from Tekoa, right? But Amos was called to go to Bethel. He was living in the southern kingdom of Judah In Tekoa was in Judah. He was called to go by, he was called by God to go to Bethel in the northern kingdom of Israel. Where It was a place where King Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, had established to be like one of the great high places, one of the places of, of religious uh, idolatry is really what it was, but, but the way they kind of spun it was it was a religious elite kind of place, right? What do you think God thinks? I mean, knowing what we know now, you know, <coughs> a few thousand years later, What do you think God thinks about religious elitism? What about religious elitism that flies in the face of the word of God? He's got no place for it. And so we need to be careful because uh, there's a little bit of that today, right? You might argue there's a lot of that today. And so all that to say, I want you to kind of see this picture of this guy Amos from Tekoa preaching to the elites in Bethel. And so chapters 1 and 2, he spoke about uh, some of the Gentile nations surrounding and then kind of moved his way in towards uh, prophesy about judgment coming upon Israel. And then chapters 3 through 6 were some specific prophecies of some coming judgment. And in fact, uh, historians tell us that about 25 years after the writing of this book and the prophetic vision of Amos, uh, the Assyrians came in and actually did conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. And so, sure enough, everything that Amos uh, prophesied for the most part uh, was fulfilled by that uh, coming judgment uh, at the hands of the Assyrians. And so that was chapters 3 through 6. Now, 7 through 9, uh, God gives Amos some visions, actually five visions, um, followed by, we'll see in chapters 9, verse 11 through 15, followed by a future vision of a, of a glorious kingdom that uh, was yet future. And so that's kind of the roadmap a little bit. All right? Everybody good? I lost anybody yet? I lose anybody in Versailles or Milton? Brooksburg? Out in Hanover? China? Canaan? I'm good. <laughs> Midway. Midway did not count. All right. Thus the Lord showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, "O oh Lord God, forgive, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. And so notice there he says, Thus the Lord showed me. We're going to see that repeated a few times. And that's the sort of, this would be the first vision that God showed him. The first vision was a locust plague destroying the crops. Again, Amos is a farmer, right? He's a sheep breeder. Um, you know, and so he's going to be very sensitive and very in tune with um, sort of agricultural visions, if you will. And so God shows him this vision of locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. That's when it would have been like, you know, the 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 grain would have been sort of fully mature, ready to be harvested, and that's right when the locusts would come and, and destroy it. We read about the locust uh, plagues in the book of Joel. And Amos cries out to the Lord. Oh, and, and the vision was that, you know, after, after the locusts got the crops, then they got the grass. And Amos says, Lord God, please don't do that. Please forgive, I pray. Because... Jacob is small. Jacob meaning the land of Israel. We're small. We're humble. Lord, please, just according to your mercy. He's not, not, hey, please, because we deserve it. Please, we'll try better next time. Please, uh, for anything based on us, catch this now. Please, according to your mercy, Lord, would you please not bring a locust swarm? And notice this is very interesting. So, the Lord relented concerning this. All right? It shall not be, says the Lord. Now, this is what we call a responsibility passage, right? And if you've been here before, you know this, and you've probably known it ad nauseum. Uh, there's, sort of, there's sort of two aspects that we see in Scripture of life. And one is God is completely sovereign. God is in control. God is infinitely smarter than we are. God orchestrates our lives. God orchestrates history from beginning to end. Does the Bible teach that? Absolutely. There's another truth that's taught in the Scripture man is completely responsible for his actions. Is that true? Does Galatians tell us, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, he's going to reap? If he sows to the flesh, he'll reap corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he'll reap everlasting life. Does the Bible say that? Yes, it does. And so you have these two things that seem like they're competing or seem like even they're maybe contradictory. But we have to understand we're talking about the nature of God. So if God were, well, let's just say God is infinitely smarter than we are. So to us, in our human capacity, it seems like that. But somehow we have to accept that both these are biblically true and we embrace both of them. And it's important that we embrace both of them, we understand both of them. And so what do you do with that? Well, okay, so I I see this vision of locusts. And so I ask God, God, please don't do that according to your mercy. And God says, okay, did I change God's mind? Well, no, I didn't change God's mind. God told uh, Balaam, I believe it was, Uh, hey, I'm not a man that I should uh, change my mind. So God doesn't change his mind, and yet somehow, you know, uh, Amos prays, and God said, okay, I'll back off. We just have to accept that. What it means to us, because, you know, the sovereignty of God, we just trust that. We just rest in that, okay? Okay. But I think what it what where we sometimes we can slip off the sovereignty uh, path a little bit by saying, "Oh well, God's in control." Too bad, so sad for you know if you're on the wrong side of the equation. And uh, why bother praying? Why bother uh, you know preaching the gospel? Why bother sending out missionaries? Because God's in control anyway. That's the wrong conclusion to draw from God's sovereignty. The right conclusion is. Lord, let's pray, right? Lord, would you please have your way in this situation? And we're going to trust that you know better than we do, but Lord, would you please have your way in this situation? And I think it's good that we see passages like this that might challenge our brain a little bit, but at the same time give comfort to our hearts. Does that make sense? You may recall, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you read recently God's up, God and Moses are up on the mountain, right? God says, hey, by the way, they're down there being stupid. And sure enough, they're down there being stupid. And God says, hey, hang on a second. I'm going to basically wipe them all out and start all over with you, Moses. And instead of being the, the children of Abraham, they're going to be the children of Moses. And Moses says, Lord, please don't do that because, you know, you're doing okay so far. And, Lord, please don't do that. And it says God said, all right. He relented. Now, was he just tested Moses? Did, you know, but I don't think Moses changed his mind. Moses just prayed, right? And so we don't have to fully comprehend all of the attributes of God. Thankfully, we can't, right? Because we worship a God that's smarter than we are. That's okay. I'm good with that. And so we pray and we intercede. And when things come our way, it's important that we, it's important that we individually and we as a body pray as needs come up it's just important. He goes on to the second vision. Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God called called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, Oh, Lord God, cease, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So similar thing, second time. This time he calls. He sees a vision of a fire that's so, so powerful that it consumes the the sea. It says, it consumes the great deep, and devoured the territory. And again, Amos prayed, and and God relented. Again, do we fully understand that? No. Is that okay? Yes. Thus he showed me. Behold, the Lord stood on the wall, on a wall made with a plumb line. With a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them any more. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Now, I mentioned earlier, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. This, during the time of Amos. We're living in the time of, the, of Jeroboam II, so don't be confused by that. The house of Jeroboam he's talking about is the house of the king, Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel at the time of Amos' prophecy. So he says, what do you see? I see a plumb line, he says. Now, uh, some of you are uh, in the room are construction-minded. That's awesome. What's a plumb line? It's a straight up and down line. It's upright level, right? My dad taught me this word, plum. You know how he taught me this? When I put in a fence post that was not plum, right? I thought it was a fruit. My dad said, that ain't plum. And, and my dad had this way. My dad, was a, my dad was a contractor. He could look like across the street. You ever, some of you guys are this way. My dad could look across the street and say, that post is out of plum like, whatever, Dad. So my dad helped me build straight fences. And, uh, but a plumb line, you know, if I, held a, if I held up a string and put a weight at the bottom of it, it goes straight up and down, right? According to the laws of gravity and God's design and all of that. It's, not, it's really a fascinating thing if you think about it. And it's in God's example here, It's a standard of right and wrong. It's a standard of right and wrong. Chew on that for a minute in our modern day. We kind of lost the plumb lines, didn't we? And you know, hey, if, I mean, imagine this. How ridiculous is this? Well, hey, man, if, if that's your plumb line, that works for you. My plumb line works for me. I don't judge. <laughs> what? Right? We're talking about truth. Truth is truth. Right? Jesus said, your word is truth. Referring to the word of God. God's word is truth. And sooner or later, every human being is, is going to come to terms with that. Philippians t- chapter two says, one day every single knee and every every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Plumb line. Is Jesus Christ Lord or not? Yes, he is. And one day, one day, every human being that's ever been created, how does that work? Well, how are they all gonna fit there? It, no, just this is where we rest in God's, in God's word. One day, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that acknowledges the plumb line is the plumb line. The plumb line doesn't lie. Truth never becomes qualified by definition because it's truth. And God says here to Amos, you know what? I'm setting a plumb line right in the midst of my people Israel. And, you know, the high places of Isaac, you know, these, these, these sort of... Uh, and you have to understand, when they set up these, these high places, these places of idol worship, they weren't like saying, you know, the God of the Jews, the God of the Bible, he's not our God anymore. They were just saying, you know, this is kind of how we worship God. This is kind of our God. Like, like even if you read it in context, that when, when Aaron made the golden calf... He told the people, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt. And so it's like, you know, he's not saying that's not Yahweh. He's not saying we, we, re, we reject Yahweh God. It's just that we identify him as a calf. So you got to catch this. It's kind of like, it's not that they're rejecting God. It's that they're redefining God. You know, if in our world, now, to be fair, there are some people who just flat out reject God. But there are way more people that redefine God. And don't forget the plumb line. God is not to be redefined. God's word is not to be rewritten. God's word does not need help. Why do we why are we passionately committed to the reading and teaching of God's Word, Genesis to Revelation? Because it will not be redefined. There is no other absolute truth. Is this a great psychology book? Yeah, sorta, but way more. Is there any psychology let me rephrase it? Because you thought that was a trick question and I always set you up with trick questions and you're like, which is the wrong answer? Because I don't want to blurt it out. Yeah, okay, I'll walk you through it, right? Is there a better psychology book than this? No. No. Is there a better relationship book than this? No. Is there a greater love story than this? None. Is there a greater book on practical daily living for all the issues of life than this? Not even close. And yet, we find ourselves culturally, none of you guys do this because you're all awesome, but we find ourselves culturally constantly redefining all these things. We live culturally as if the latest psychology book and its prescription, medicine, said the doctor, is better than this. We live that way right? You know, day-to-day human life, my life coach, we, act, we, we live as a culture as if my life coach, my latest whatever of the narrative is better and more useful than this. How do I know that? Because I know how much we devote to those things, and I know how much we devote to the reading and studying of the Word of God as a culture. So let that not be said of us, right? God has established a plumb line. His plumb line is truth. Well, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, hey, this guy Amos, he's a conspiracy theorist. Is this this relevant? This guy Amos... You know what he's doing? He's spreading misinformation. Against you. In the midst of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, this guy Amos, king, said this, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. And as I said earlier, sure enough, that did happen. And Amos prophesied it, and it did happen. But the reality is Amaziah, the priest of this false idolatrous religious system at Bethel, who worked for the king Jeroboam, he didn't like the message that was negative to the king or his kingdom or his religion. And so therefore, this guy Amos, sorry, this guy Amaziah, has no other recourse except to label Amos as a conspirator. Draw your own conclusions to modern-day application, but let me just say this. The plumb line doesn't lie. Truth is truth. Some stuff that's truth is going to get called misinformation. Now, having said that, not from any of you guys, but from, like, people that you know, like their cousins, right? Sometimes have conspiracy theories, right? And I've heard some good ones. And some of them are just, frankly, entertaining. But let that not cause us to shy away from telling what we know to be the truth. And let that not cause us to shy away from embracing the truth and standing on the truth, even if it's unpopular. The truth was unpopular in the days of King Jeroboam II. The truth was unpopular amongst the religious elites like Amaziah, but that didn't make Amos shy away. I love Amos' response here that we'll read in a minute. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Hey, you seer, you misinformation conspiracy theorist uh, wacko guy who's been taken down from social media accounts. <laughs> Go, you seer. And, and I kind of make jest of that, right? The word seer, uh, commentators would tell you, the word seer is kind of like a, a bit of a mockery term, right? Like, yeah, you seer like not acknowledging that Amos is a legitimate prophet of God whose words have been preserved for thousands of years, right? But like, yeah, you're, a, you're one of those. You're one of those wacko guys, right? You know who you are. Go, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah. Go back home. Go back home to your cute little town, Toccoa there. I mean, you can feel the, the condescension, can't you? Go, you seer. Get out of here. Go back to the land of Judah. There, just eat your bread, and there prophesy. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary, and it's his royal residence. Do you get this? Do you get the pompous attitude of religious elitism? Please catch this, because this is alive and well today. It goes with the narrative. It goes with lots of things. Go, you seer. Just go back home to, to Judah. Eat your bread and prophesy and mind your own business. You small-town farmer misinformation dude. And, and just stay away from Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary. It's his royal residence. I love this. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was a no-prophet. Nor was I the son of a prophet, but I was just a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. And the sycamore fruit, as I understand from the commentators, was to tend the sycamore fruit was a very tedious job, right? Like you'd pick a little bit of a, somehow you'd pick the sycamores in in that day to get a little bit of of the fruit out of it. So it's, it's like, this was very menial work. Like, it's not like Amos was, you know, a rancher in Texas, right? He was like a sheep breeder that in, his, in the off times uh, picked apart sycamore fruit uh, just to basically survive. He said, I was no prophet nor a son of a prophet. It's not like I had a big pedigree. But I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. And then the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said to me, go, prophesy to my people Israel. Please, please, please don't miss this. If you ever feel like you're one of these uh, uh, insignificant sheep breeders from Tacoma in a world of religious elitism, political elitism, all these pieces of elitism, please notice these verses. Amos said, you know what I was doing? I'll paraphrase now. Amos says, I was minding my own business. I was faithfully doing what God called me to do. And there was no glamour in it. There was no headlines. There was no book signing lines. I was just a guy picking my sycamores and watching my sheep, minding my own business, doing it faithfully. And you know what happened? God noticed that. God noticed that. And God said, now there's a guy, there's a faithful guy that I can use to deliver a message up to Bethel. You catch this? And you know, even if God hadn't called Amos to go deliver the message up at Bethel, what do we know about Amos? God saw him. God recognized his faithfulness. And God apparently valued that. And, so, and I say that because sometimes we... I've seen this so often, so often. I, 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 call it the, I call it the ministry hierarchy, right? Like, if you're a rock star Christian, you go to some unreached people group as a missionary. And if you're like a B Christian, you're like a pastor of a megachurch, but still in the carnal side of the world in the United States right? And if you're a C Christian, you're like a pastor of, uh, of some church. And if you're a D Christian, you're like Joe Blow in the seats, you guys, right? But I'm a C, so that's okay, right? Do you think God sees it like that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Does the church see it like that sometimes? Too often, perhaps? Absolutely. And I will tell you this. As long as I have opportunity to stand here and teach, I'm going to do my best to undermine that mentality. Honestly, there are a few things that get me... Okay, there are a handful of things that get me fired up. That one gets me fired up. I do not like that mentality. I can't stand that mentality. And I don't think it reflects the heart of God, because I feel like I, as a guy who, and honestly, if I won't go into it, but to me, I was no prophet, I was no pastor, I was no Bible teacher, I was a guy trying to mind my own business, pick my own sycamore figs, feed my kids, take care of my wife, and you know, God said, I want you to start teaching the Bible?" And to me, it's like nothing special about... I mean, it's, it's, it's privilege. But it's no more of a privilege than any other service to God. that's from the heart. Right? And one of the reasons I love having missionaries come here is because in many ways we have relationships with the kinds of missionaries that don't see the hierarchy. What you guys don't realize is, well, I'm on tape now, but whatever. We filtered. can I go for it? Can I have it, Nate? This is from Nate Murphy. Um, honestly, I've filtered out some missionaries. They like to use the word like, I'm in full-time ministry. Right? Those are fighting words. I can remember the last fight I had with a guy over it. (laughs) A missionary. Right? And then he's like, well, that's not what I meant. And I'm like, dude, it's what you meant. Right? Amos is a guy that says, I was just faithfully doing my own business. You know, when the Messiah, when Jesus was on earth, the Jewish people knew, he, when they acknowledged that he was the Messiah, what did they call him? The son of David. Because the Old Testament, the Old Testament told us that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. If you've been here very long, you know my, this is one of my favorite stories. What was David doing when God, when Samuel came to town to anoint the next king of Israel? He was out pretty much doing the same thing Amos was doing, minding his own business. Right? Now, I'm not saying that if you're minding your own business, God's going to raise you up into some superstar, uh, high profile thing. That's not the point. The point is, we're faithful, doing what God has called us to do. It is so, so, so important. I hope you hear the heart of God on that. I, I don't think that's just my opinion. I could be wrong, but I hope you hear the heart of God on that. I love that verse. I was no prophet, I was a sheep breeder. Just minding my own business. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. So, since I have been called by God to deliver a message, I'm going to do it faithfully, and I'm going to do it unashamedly, and I'm going to call a plumb line a plumb line. You've got to love that part, too. He says, Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, hey, don't prophesy against Israel and do not spout against this house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land. And just like I said back in verse 11, Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. So Amos says, I was just minding my own business. But oh, by the way, what I said was true. It's going to come to pass. And you, Amaziah, you and your family are going to be so wiped out that your wife is going to be destitute. And in those days, you know, she depended very much on, the, on her husband for her provision. Your wife is going to be so destitute that she's going to have to resort to radical means for her provision. Chapter 8. Thus the Lord God showed me. Again, another vision. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people, Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple. I'm sorry, scratch that. Stop there. I will not pass by them anymore. So Amos, this vision, he sees a basket of summer fruit. This is the, this is the fourth vision now. And the fruit was so ripe. You got to keep, keep in mind that was before the days of refrigeration and, and preservation and all that. So when the fruit was like fully ripe, what's that mean? going to happen next week. It's going to be more than fully ripe. It's going to be gnarly, right? It's going to, be, it's going to stink. And he said, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing. I'm seeing judgment on its way here. The fruit was so ripe, it was approaching the time when it would go bad. And the same way fate would happen to Israel. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. The songs of the temple, wait a minute, isn't that, doesn't that sound like worship music? Mm, no, it sounds like false worship. sounds like false worship. Again, you know, when God gets redefined, when the word gets rewritten, and, you know, you can sing, you can sing false worship songs. If you're going to rewrite the Bible and if you're going to redefine who God is, and if you're going to rewrite Christianity, you might as well rewrite the worship as well. And God says, you know, when that time comes, those songs, they're going to be wailing. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fall. So we're, uh, I'm sorry, fail. So we're seeing some kind of what are they doing that's inconsistent with God's word. You guys are saying, "When the new moon be pa- will the, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making an ephah small and a shekel large?" So they're modifying. So notice this: they're they're uh, they're oppressing the poor, they're rewriting uh, the holidays, they're rewriting the Sabbath, they're even rewriting the units of measurement uh, for their personal gain. Basically, they're corrupt. Rewriting the religious holidays? You don't do that. Making an ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. God does not forget when corruption causes oppression, when God's holidays... When God's word, when all of that is rewritten for the sake of personal gain. Verse it shall the land not tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it. All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And so God is going to now give some Descriptions. And so uh, the first one would be that the land would swell, kind of like a, most most commentators say, like an earthquake swell and heave up like the like the river in Egypt, like the water of Egypt would rise and fall. Uh, the land would do the same thing. Then the second one, and it should come, come to pass in the day in that day, says the Lord God that I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. And so, you know, the second sign uh, that God was going to give was he's going to give a darkness over the land. Maybe an eclipse, uh, you know, would be a reminder. And it would be a reminder, perhaps it would be a reminder of the, one of the plagues in Egypt was was total darkness over the land, right? So we have an eclipse coming up. I'm not saying that that's, you know, God's judgment or anything Just go out and enjoy the eclipse, right, and God's control over nature and all that. So uh, that's fine. But he's saying in this day, you know, maybe I'm going to bring darkness uh, to show the world that I'm in control. I will tell you this. If you go out and and watch that eclipse, I think it's early April. When you look up, just realize who's in control. Just realize who's in control. Just stop and reflect. Who's in control of everything? Sometimes God likes to remind us. Verse 10. This is the third sort of description. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning. For, like mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. And so this picture is like all the celebrations and entertainment and feasts is going to be turned into mourning when the judgment comes. He says, verse 11, look at this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So this is now the fourth description. Now, different commentators have different takes on this. Some say that the word of God is still being spoken, but it's just not being heard, right? He said uh, the famine is going to be of hearing of the word of God. We need to be as diligent as we can to hear the word of God. Consider Israel in those days. Lots of religion... Lots of neglect of the Word of God, even though they had the Word of God. They had the scrolls. They had the the writings of Moses. They had all of that. But there was a famine. Famine causes death and destruction. There was a famine of the Word of God. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. You know, there's a principle about our appetites, if you will. If you talk to anybody who's who's fasted for a prolonged period of time, after about three or four days, you're not hungry. It's like you don't care about food. You could walk through a buffet line and say, yeah, whatever. Right? And so sometimes as we neglect the Word of God, we lose our taste for it. Is that possible? It's possible. Is that dangerous? It's very dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. And so he's saying, you know, the time's going to come. They're going to they're be so not used to, to the Word of God, they won't even recognize it. They'll be kind of looking for something, but they won't find it. 2 Timothy, you can turn over there if you want. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1 through 5. Listen to these words, if you would. Think about these words in the context of our current culture, even our current Christian culture. And think about these words as the words written, the last written word that Paul has to the Apostle Paul has to say, recorded in the Scripture. This is what the Apostle Paul says right before his death. He knows he's going to die, he's going to be executed, and he's got one last letter to write to Timothy, a young pastor, and he wants to give Timothy some final words of instruction. And so not to make it sound dramatic, but this is the final chapter of the final letter At the end of Paul's life, when he says, I want to leave you with this. Now, if you were about to die, and you had a young disciple, Pastor Timothy, and you wanted to impart, I mean, you'd give him the most important thing you got. Would you not? This is what Paul's doing for Timothy. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. He's going to judge the world. According to his plumb line, which is truth. Here's what Paul says to Timothy Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And I've got to be careful because I'm not the final authority on how to, how to do teaching and preaching and any of that. But what I do know is what Paul wrote to Timothy. And what I do know is that the time will come, Paul said, and I believe in many, many ways the time has come. When they won't endure sound doctrine. But, you know, they, like to, they still like to show up someplace on Sunday morning and be entertained. And so they're going to, you know, and their ears like to be scratched. You ever, you ever have an itch? Like, your ear is very sensitive, right? It's very sensitive. You know, if it's got an itch, you want it scratched, right? Right here, right? If it itches, you want it scratched. And you know, because they have itching ears, they're going to heap up for themselves teachers that are going to scratch their ears. And they're going to turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Let that please never be said of us. He says, but you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Back to Amos. God says the days are coming, to, at least to the northern kingdom of Israel, right? He said, I'm going to send a famine, a famine of hearing the words of God. We should take, those, we should take that warning seriously. And we should be diligent to hang on to the word of God as much as we can. In that day, the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Again, the false religion, false religion at Dan, false religion at Beersheba, that's not going to be helpful during times of judgment. Even the young and the strong will faint from thirst of the word. Chapter 9, I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the doorposts that, sh- the th- that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. So this is the final of the five visions. Amos somehow sees God standing by an altar, pronouncing destruction on it and its worshipers. And he goes on, though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. So when God brings judgment, again we talked about this a little bit last week, right? Can we escape God? Adam tried to hide from God in the, in the cool of the day, it says, right? Did Adam hide from God? No. Jonah tried to get on a ship, and depending on, where you, on how you, different commentators have different takes on this, go to Tarshish. Some say that was Spain. Imagine, in the ancient world, you're there along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea at Joppa, in the northern part of what is now the northern part of Israel there. And God says, hey, why don't you go to Nineveh, that town up in Assyria, to the north. Assyrians, wait a minute. They're the bad guys. They're evil. And God says, no, I want you to go up there because I care about everybody. And Jonah, being a good Jew, said, Assyrians, I think you got the wrong guy. I'm out of here. I'm going to Spain. Spain. (laughs) <laughs> think about that you know we're used to on the, you know you look on a map you see the Mediterranean Sea you say well that's not as big as the Gulf of Mexico well let me tell you this when you're, I, I've stood on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea it's huge it's overwhelming and you're going to get on a boat and take that to Spain because I think God's not in Spain he won't notice Right? How that work for Jonah? We'll read it in a few weeks. Right? God said, now, the other side of that, the other side of that, Psalm 139, David says, where can I go from your presence? Nowhere. And that is awesome. Right? If we're on the right side of God's grace, we love that God is everywhere. We love that God knows the number of hairs on our head. Right? We're not trying to go to Spain. We're content with that. And so God says, you know what? If they try to hide from me, that's not going to work. Verse 5, the Lord God of hosts, who t- he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn. All of it shall, be, shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded the strata in the earth who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Please don't ever forget. I know this comes up all the time. We're talking about God, the God that created the world. We're talking about the God who created the world. He's the guy that put the... Rivers in place. He built the layers in the sky. He built the layers of the earth. He put the seas in all the right places. He is the creator. And without getting off too much, most of our modern thinking, culturally now, we think we can rewrite God because we rewrote creation. You know, if I can rewrite creation, then I can say there's really no higher being than God. If man just evolved, then man is the highest being. And it's subtle, but it has, inv- it has infected our world. If man has evolved, then man is the highest authority and man has to be the one to solve all of man's problems, right? You've heard me say before, if I weren't a Christian and I had to look around and I had to say all these problems that we, that we face in the world, it's okay because man is smart enough to collectively, uh, you know, work together you know we'll all kind of hum the same tune and kind of sway with the music a little bit and sing a little John Lennon music and we're all going to be good and everybody's going to get along and everything's going to be awesome because man is so smart if I were a if I were not a believer in God that's as good as I got I would be freaked out but I'm not right I'm not I'm not, because of the grace of God, because of the grace of God, so I'm good saying God created the world, and as a corollary of that, I'm good saying God is smarter than I am, and as a corollary of that, I'm, sa- I'm good saying God is sovereign, and as a corollary of that, I'm, I'm okay saying, you know what, I'm going to worship God, and I recognize that he wrote the word, and I recognize that that's a plumb line that's unchangeable, and I recognize that the God of the Bible is the God of the Bible, and I'm okay with that, and I'm okay submitting to that. Yes, I said the word submit in America in the 21st century. I'm okay submitting to a higher authority than myself, and not just, a high, not just like the force or the man upstairs, but no, Yahweh, God who is personal and came to earth in the form of a human being in ways that I don't fully understand, but came to, came to earth in the form of a perfect, sinless human being, fully man and fully God, died on a cross to pay the price for my sin so that he could have a relationship with me. Is that crazy? That's the God we serve. Now, if we don't have that, we got to figure it out. And we've got to hope for the best diplomacy imaginable to fix everything. I'll choose God. Verse 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me? And I'm going to read through these quickly in case you're nervous. Uh, are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? And did, I, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kir? Oh, by the way, I'm also the God of history. I'm the God of creation. I'm also the God of history. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel. Notice that sift, the house of Israel from among all all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. So the sifting idea highlights again the fact that when judgment is coming, God prophesies judgment, judgment's going to come to to the nation in about 25 years at the hand of the Assyrians, there's always, there's always, there's always an opportunity for anyone, any human being to cry out to God and say, please save me. I love that. That's always a a picture throughout any uh, aspect of God's judgment. And so he says, you know, I'm going I'm I'm to sift the house of Israel and uh, salvation is available to anyone who wants it. And then these last verses, God ends with a prophecy of just a beautiful picture of restoration. And he says, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. They that may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold... The days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. Again, that was, as prophecy so often does, that was partially fulfilled uh, in 1948. It's going to be more completely fulfilled uh, at the end of the tribulation uh, prior to the um, the millennial kingdom. Now, if you just said, what's he talking about? Come on Wednesday night, and will explain it to you. I'll bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So God, even in this Even in this message of of judgment coming, God will restore the land. He will restore the, quote, tabernacle of David. It's a reference to uh, the millennial kingdom, right? After the tribulation, God will restore the Israel. Jesus will come back and raise up the tabernacle of David, and then we see this description of, of a glorious millennial kingdom that'll be somewhat like the Garden of Eden. Uh, We don't fully understand it, but it'll be somewhat like the Garden of Eden um, that'll reign for a thousand years. Jesus will will rule and reign for a thousand years prior uh, to our final destiny in heaven. So, uh, it's a lot to swallow, I understand. God has a plumb line. God defines truth. God defines Christianity. God defines his word. God defines worship. We don't rewrite that. We don't rewrite. We don't rewrite creation and we don't re- rewrite Christianity. We just surrender to him, submit to him, let him take care of us. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you. You're so good to us. Thank you, Lord, that you are truth. Your word is truth. Your spirit guides us into all truth. Lord, truth is so much, so much a description of who you are. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have truth to stand on. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to stand on that truth. That we would Stand on that truth not as a, not as a means of fighting anybody, but as a means of throwing a life preserver to people. Lord, you are, you are the means of salvation, and we're thankful for that. Lord, help us to never lose sight of that. Help us to stand on your word. Thank you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.